I want to start by saying, uh, I said this to Wendy, and, and I want to say it to you, that uh, I've been talking about this stuff for a really long time, and there's absolutely nothing that you could say tonight that would really offend me. So if you have like questions that, that are just burning or strange observations, please just feel free to let's have a really open and honest conversation. Um, so I, I was going to talk a little bit about our denominational history with <laughs> welcome, but I, I think maybe we'll skip some of that. Let's, let's talk about uh, kind of the, the edges of LGBTQ welcome. And if I use that language, does every, is everybody cool? Okay, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, sometimes we, we include intersex or questioning. The Q can mean several things. Um, but these are ways of, of trying to name everybody. Um, it, on the coasts, we, we tend to just use queer as a, as a blanket thing, but it makes a lot of people, especially a lot of people my age and older, blanch to hear that word, so uh, we sort of don't. Um, thank God my wife is not listening, she hates that word. <laughs> Ew, yeah. But it's such a nice, inclusive word. Uh, so uh, so I'm, I'm an ELCA pastor, I became an ELCA pastor in 2000, but I didn't really become an ELCA pastor until 2010 because we didn't start ordaining openly gay and lesbian pastors until after 2009. So uh, I came to, to Kansas City in 2000 and was ordained as, um, I don't, they called it lots of things, irregular. <laughs> we called it extraordinary because we thought that was fun with Latin. Uh, but so, so uh, it's been a journey. It's been a journey for the church. Uh, it was a journey for my church to come to a place of being totally welcome. I serve a church that is a merger of uh, sort of three congregations. We had this little remnant of our congregation that was over on the east side called Fountain of Hope. That's the hope in hope and peace. And Abiding Peace is the little congregation that I served up north that was willing to call an openly lesbian pastor in 2000. Shout out to them. Right? Only church in the country that had issued an open call was in Kansas City. And my friends all went, where? <laughs> I, was in, I was in Berkeley, California. And I came to Kansas City to take a call. Um, yeah, right? Yeah, in the Bay Area, they were kind of developing ministries for people. So you would sort of build your own, or roll your own ministry. But there weren't churches that were saying, yeah, we'd be willing to call somebody off this crazy roster. We had this roster, we had like, when I, I think when I went on it, I was like the fifth person to go on it. And, and I don't think any of us thought we were actually going to get calls. But we didn't know what else to do because God had called us into ministry and we weren't liars. And it only worked if you were able to kind of fudge around the truth about whether or not you were in a relationship. So uh, we started this roster and uh, there was a job in Kansas City, go figure. And you got to be interviewed by Bill Timaeus if you were ordained or anything. So... <laughs> It's true. Uh, I still miss your column. Um, so, uh, are there any questions, first of all, about this part of the, of the that's, that's enough probably of my story. I have a wonderful wife and uh, the little boy with us has been with us since he was born. 
and uh, his mom lives with us now and we have no idea where any of that's going but we just love on him all we can and he loves on us back and it's a great life and we have a bunch of dogs and cats <laughs> so uh thought i'd talk a little bit about uh the whole welcoming thing it is not static you know you can't just hang out a shingle and say yes we're welcoming because it, it used to be the organization in the Lutheran Church that does our open and affirming work, which we call Reconciling in Christ, was formed in 1974. And when it was formed in 1974 by five people sitting around in an apartment, they called it Lutherans Concerned for Gay People. <laughs> I know, it's funny now. It was really cool and cutting edge in 1974, right? So they called it Lutherans Concerned for Gay People. And then, then they dropped the four gay people because it was kind of cumbersome and they wanted to be a little more inclusive. And then they started using gay and lesbian, and then we started using gay and lesbian and let's include bisexual people, and then we added transgender, although we never have done very good uh, uh, work, education work around the, the T and LGBT, which is one of the things I want to talk about a little bit. Um, so, so it's never static, this work. Right now in our congregation, we have two people that identify as non-binary gender, and that's been a journey for us, a congregation that has been open and affirming or reconciling in Christ since the 90s. Now we have two people that, are, that identify as non-binary gender, so we had to learn new pronouns, right? Because they use uh, Z, here, and here's pronouns. So now we have name tags at church and everybody lists their pronouns so that we can all get used to using the Z pronouns for Joni and Ruth Ellen. So it's, it's always evolving, this, this welcoming thing. So that, I, wanna, I wanna say that um, I want to say when you're dealing with bisexual people that uh, it's important to understand what bisexuality is. <laughs> I went to the, uh, the ELCA when we had this uh, sexuality task force that met for eight years to talk about whether or not we were going to open the roster to gay and lesbian pastors and whether or not we were going to bless same-sex unions. And so they went through this long study process and uh, we went the second or third year that they had been meeting to meet with the task force and one of the professors that was on this task force asked one of my colleagues who had identified herself in the introduction, she'd said that she was in a, in a committed relationship and bisexual and he said, I need you to explain to me how that works. This is a seminary professor <laughs> because it didn't make any sense to him that you could be bisexual and also in a committed and monogamous relationship. So. Uh, when we get to the B in LGBT, make sure that everybody understands what bisexuality is, that it doesn't mean um, that you're omnivorous. <laughs> you know, it just means that you can be attracted to, to men and women and, and now people of nonspecific genders. Um, okay, questions? So when you say omnivorous, what does that mean? Well, what, what his understanding, this, this professor's understanding of bisexuality was that if you were bisexual, you, you, you liked men and women at the same time, and you, and you couldn't settle on something. So you couldn't possibly be monogamous because how could you commit to one or the other was his sense of that. And a lot of people have that sense of bisexuality. You know, for a long time in the gay and lesbian community, there was a real... Uh, unease with bisexual people, and that's letting up a bit, but, you know, yes? What's non-binary? Thank you, what's non-binary? So, gender we've always understood, or we have un historically understood, 
as one of two things, right? You're male or you're female. And, and when you come out, uh, the doctor looks at you and says, male, female. But uh, some people identify as neither. Some people identify as both. We're realizing that like sexuality, gender is on a spectrum. So some people are absolutely, you know, you know, Kinsey had this scale, right, well, uh, for sexuality. Gender is, is, can do that as well. So some people are not anymore feeling like I'm 100% male or I'm 100% female. And that all falls under the umbrella of transgender, although all of this language is fluid and tricky. Uh, but generally, under the, under, under the umbrella of transgender are anything that is uh, any time that you say, I am not the gender I was assigned at birth. And some people are, are assigned a gender at birth because the doctor can't really figure it out. And, and, you know, so we're learning that some people, a lot of times a doctor looks at a child, says, I'm not really sure, and they write M or F on the birth certificate and the child grows up. And now we're starting to see parents who, uh, when the kid is seven, eight years old, are, are actually allowing their children to live into the gender that they actually feel instead of what it says on their birth certificate. So non-binary is, is a way of talking about not identifying absolutely as male or female. So they get their own pronouns or they don't. Uh, but Z here and here's are, are pronouns that are used by non-binary people. Some people use they and their pronouns. So what's Z? Z, it would be like she or he. But it's but Z, who is not right. He or she. Right, so I say, I went, I went with Ruth Ellen last week to a movie and Z thought it was really good and I thought it was okay. So I, I do that really well when I'm speaking to groups. At church, I still occasionally say she. It's hard. And they are they have been so patient with us. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm wondering if from a theological point of view, if mm -hmm. the Q could possibly stand for quella or the Q source. Oh which literally means what? Interesting. In so the, the non specific Huh. I've just How do I write that down? I need to think about I'm that later. Right? That's really, do you all know what the Q source is? So, you know, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They do? No. That's very impressive. Oh, okay. You do. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John as, as primary source material for the Gospels, but then there's this material that's in uh, Matthew and Luke, and we know it comes from somewhere, but we don't have, no goat herd has yet found a scrap of parchment that has this document on it. <laughs> And so they, we refer to that as the as the Q, the Q document. Although there's not actually a document, and that's all the stuff that you know, the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, and the things that are in Matthew and Luke that aren't anywhere else. So that's very interesting because it's a it's a it's a sort of not specific. It's, it's not specific. Right. Yeah. It is kind of a queer document, you could say. It, 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 yeah. yeah. Inter. Yes. Exactly. There may there may not be. You know, it just may have been that, that collection of stories that was carried so carefully together, which... I, th I think that's what I'm going to use Q to stand for. I like it. Mind. I like it. I'm going to, yeah, I may join you. Bill. Janice, since the Lutheran denomination changed its rules and allows ordination 
of otherwise qualified LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. How is the denomination doing? Great question. Thank you. I did want to talk about that. Um, so, so the the question is: in two thousand nine, we we changed our policy. The sexuality task force finished its work. They they published this uh, statement on sexuality. And for our church, a statement is a document that actually changes policy. So we have several different levels of public statement, and the, and, and the statement is the most important one. And then we voted on uh, whether or not we were going to bless same-gender unions, and the, that, that did fairly well. And we voted on whether we were going to allow the ordination of openly gay and lesbian pastors, and that one, that one, <laughs> that passed by one vote. So, which was pretty wild. Um, and in the time since 2009, we've lost a lot of members. We've lost some churches. You know, I, I also work for the bishop uh, here in our synod, which is Missouri and Kansas. And uh, you can imagine that in parts of Missouri and Kansas, that decision didn't go over very well. And we actually still have a church that's talking about pulling out, although we keep telling them that they're behind the times. If you were gonna leave in a huff, really, eight years is a long time to wait. <laughs> That door's been slammed multiple times. Uh, so we lost churches, we lost some folks, and it has, I've noticed over the last two years maybe, and certainly over the last year, it's settled. And we are now a more positive denomination. We like each other more. We are more welcoming to lots of different people. At our Synod Assembly, which was just a couple of weeks ago, here in Kansas City, we were voting on whether or not to uh, put together a task force to talk about becoming a sanctuary synod, which is pretty edgy stuff. Sanctuaries are pretty edgy. Do you know what that is? Uh, right, right. So you would make a sanctuary church, or at least what it meant in the 80s, was a sanctuary church made a public statement saying, we will shelter immigrants and you can come here and be safe and we will keep you safe from the authorities, which is has more or less legal bearing, but uh, so we're talking about becoming a sanctuary synod. And uh, I was prepared for some pretty scary conversation about this. And there were, there were a few people that got up and said, you're talking about putting together a task force to break the law. And we thought, oh no, we're gonna have this terrible conversation like we used to have when we talked about human sexuality, which was always about homosexuality. Um, and the, it passed overwhelmingly. We voted down the amendments and, and we passed the resolution. Now we, all we did was establish a task force, but that's, that can be enough to blow the church up. So we, I feel like we, all, we finally, when all the dust settled, we're headed in the same direction. And this thing that was so huge and terrifying that we had to talk about every year at the Senate Assembly, uh, once, once it's cleared, we're all headed in the same direction, and we're so much more welcoming. We find this with churches, too. You know, the churches who have done their work and become open and affirming or reconciling in Christ, whatever your, whatever your name for it is, once you've written a statement that says everyone is welcome and we, by everyone we mean these people, all of a sudden you become more welcoming of all these people and mentally ill people, which is a you know, a lot of churches are not great places for you. If you have even, you know, things like bipolar and depression, people don't want to deal with you. 
and congregations that have done this welcome work are better places for everybody has been my experience. I'm jaded, or I'm biased, not jaded. <laughs> I'm not jaded at all, strangely. Yes? I don't know. That is a very good question. I have no idea. I, I know that we have been playing around with language around especially the gendered nature of language and you know I mean when I was in college we were still using man and he for, as the universal pronoun and now that's kind of gone although we're still struggling in the church with inclusive language but I don't know. I, I, if I had to guess they're looking for something that doesn't sound like he and doesn't sound like she and they sort of settled in there, but I don't know. I'll find out. Thank you. Yes? I know that the word queer can be used kind of as, like you said, an umbrella term that refers to a lot of different things, um, but I feel like I've been hearing it more often referring to specifically like people that are open to polyamorous relationships or mm. not monogamous, but you know, it can be open relationship, and I was just wondering, you know, whether conversations about that have come up, like in the context of mm. denomination or even just personal conversations theologically, because obviously in the church there's a lot more focus on, you know, being open and affirming as far as like accepting of monogamous mm -hmm. relationships. That's that's like a more direct line, but then. It seems like where would polyamorous fit in, or does it, or? Uh, it hasn't yet, and we have we have seminarians who are really uh, that are beginning a conversation in Chicago, especially around the fact that that w when we changed the policy, what we said was basically uh, if you're gay or lesbian, and and this, I mean I'm using gay and lesbian because that we were only talking about gay and lesbian people. Uh, if you are if you're bisexual, we you you get placed in the category according to who you're in relationship with, which is not great for your identity, but it's the it's the way that because they're interested. Quite honestly, they're interested in who you're sleeping with. Um, I mean, that's that's the way that it comes down. So uh, when we changed the policy, basically what we said was, if you're gay and lesbian, gay or lesbian, and you're in a relationship, it's got to be a committed relationship. It's got to look like exactly the same policy that we had for our straight candidates, which was within the confines of marriage. And, you know, we've looked the other way around some things, but, but you know, within the confines of marriage. So there are people that are starting a conversation. And in fact, Mike Bishop called me <laughs> about three months after the, uh, after the ruling and said, so are you guys married? <laughs> I said, we can't, you know, we don't have marriage in, in Missouri, right? We don't have marriage in Missouri. Well, we, the bishops met and uh, we want everyone to do the, the highest thing that you can do in your particular area. And the really funny thing was <laughs> Colleen lived in Virginia and I lived in Kansas City at that time. <laughs> so, you know, uh, and I said, as soon as she moves here, we'll register as domestic partners. And then she moved here and we got married. So, because <laughs> by that time we could go to Iowa. I don't even think we could go to Iowa in 2009. But we went, we went to Iowa and got married. But, but th that was, they, they were very serious about, you know, we're, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll change the policy, but the policy had, then has to be the same for everybody. We have not even broached a conversation about polyamory, about 
what it means to, you know, we, we all marry people who are living together. I think I've married one couple in my entire career that wasn't already living together. I mean, that's, that's the reality on the ground in the world today. But we have different standards for our ordained people. <laughs> that's also the reality, I guess. I s uh, Travis. Uh, there's been like a recent social and political shift in the United States <laughs> and a lot of rhetoric that goes with it. Are you concerned about that leading into the church or how do you feel about that outside of the church? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's probably going to come into the church. It's become really uh, acceptable to be kind of nasty right now, you know, about difference. We were doing pretty well as a country, and and, and, and honestly, those of us who, who are LGBT and who have been out for a while, uh, just about 201, if you've been out 15, 20, 25 years, the, the changes that we've made in this country are amazing. You know, I mean, we're still working on racism and, and, ba and, and failing badly. And we have, we have really moved well in acceptance of LGBT people. We need to work on our racism. Um, but sure, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come into the church, and the church is using this moment to discriminate openly under the, under the rubric of uh, religious freedom. I'm sorry, that's, <laughs> but that's how I feel. I mean, it's, it's a nonsense conversation. Religious freedom is just fine in this country, and uh, people who are talking about religious freedom are, are trying to use it to get out of doing uh, civilized things for fellow citizens. <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, I think so. This is a really weird time. <laughs> yeah. Nick. Hey. Um, so I, I'd be curious to hear. So uh, I'd be curious to hear about any structures. I mean, it sounds like the the church that you came into here at St. Mark's had already done some work prior to mm. following you. Uh, but I'm wondering because. Anytime you're in the context of a church, you're going to get people who are approaching a subject like this from a number of different perspectives and will come to a number of different conclusions. Mm -hmm. So uh, have there been any things that you have found to be useful that you've done in your own context or that you've seen done at other churches in order to actually create um, a more welcoming environment and created an avenue for folks who maybe didn't know how to land on LGBTQ issues mm -hmm. in relation to, like, the scriptures or something mm -hmm. and and get them to not like win them over to your side but create a place for dialogue for potential movement and common ground to be built yeah we haven't in our congregation uh when you open the bulletin the first thing you see is uh this congregation is welcoming to all persons without regard to uh race sexual orientation gender identity so it's really pretty clear. And until we broke the flagpole, we, we flew the rainbow flag over on Troost. And then we broke the flagpole. We haven't been able to fly our flag for about a year because uh, we need a cherry picker. That's a different story for another time. Um, <laughs> we, we have conversation at the beginning of worship in Lent and Advent. And it's a great opportunity for us to, to get things out and take a look at them from, from every direction. So we'll talk about sexuality and we'll talk about gender identity. The gender identity piece, because we have non-binary people and because we're aware that, you know, a congregation that became welcoming in the 90s didn't do much work with transgender identities. And, and we didn't really understand transgender identities very well. 
in the 90s. You know, we were just starting to, to understand what it meant to, to, to feel like out of place in your body. So uh, we've done numerous conversations around what it means to be non-binary, what it means to be transgender, all of this language stuff, which I'm no kidding, has been a journey for the whole congregation, and they've done it really well. <laughs> and, you know, it's, a few people are getting really good at saying Z and not she, and others are, are still stumbling but trying. Uh, but, we, you know, so we've had lots of conversation about that. We, we get called on to talk with other people uh, about it. So I have people who, are, who can go out and talk about what it means to be really inclusive. I think the, the public conversation, uh, having everyone talk together is essential. These conversations, you know, the, the folks who run our Reconciling in Christ program would, would tell you that what you cannot do to become Reconciling in Christ is have your, your session or your council or whatever you call it meet in a closed room and decide for the entire congregation, guess what, now you're welcoming. Uh, because that's, that's you, it's not a hat. Um, so having the conversation among all the people is essential. Making sure that people, and the biblical conversation, quite honestly, is the easiest part. I mean, the biblical, it's, it's exactly what you said, Nick. It, it, we're talking about two completely different contexts. We're talking about, I don't get bogged down in what words mean because the words that are, that are translated homosexual in, in the New Testament, especially in the epistles of Paul, are, we don't know what those words mean. And spending a whole lot of time talking about words that, that, that can't be defined is really kind of wasteful. And I think that Paul did not want men sleeping with men and women sleeping with women. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't think we can change Paul's mind from the future. <laughs> you know, that's how he felt. He didn't want to grow crazy about women generally. Um, at least not in the way that, you know, that's anachronistic to say that. I'm sure he, he, he would never have survived without all the women deacons. But um, so I don't try to rewrite Paul and I don't try to rewrite Leviticus. Also help people to, to see the rest of Leviticus. It's not very hard to deal with Leviticus either, right? Right next to that is my favorite thing is the guy that has the tattoo that says, you shall not lie with a man as with a woman because it's like, I don't know, 20 verses later that it says that it's an abomination to have a tattoo. <laughs> so, <laughs> yay, selective reading. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, um, I personally, um, I don't ascribe to a particular religion. I, I grew up in Southern Baptist, but um, I'm totally um, on board with, um, um, you know, learning and, and the message. Do you, do you teach out of the, first of all, where's, where's St. Mark's and Truist? 38th and Troost. Okay. It's actually Mannheim and Troost. No one knows where Mannheim is. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and then, do you teach out of the Bible? Absolutely. Absolutely, we love the Bible. So when we went, when we had that, when we had that meeting, and we love the Bible, uh, we had that meeting with the sexuality task force. We all met beforehand, and one of my colleagues said, "Don't get drawn into a, a conversation about the Bible." <laughs> it was one of the strangest things I've heard another pastor say. Don't talk to them about the Bible. Um, so when I say, I, you know, I don't get bogged down in the trying to figure out the different verses and things. I, I, I think it's, it's the, the, the biblical stuff is easy. It's not that it's not important or valuable or 
the center of our faith. I mean, um, so, oh, so he says, don't get bogged down in the Bible. And, uh, and I argued for a minute, but he outranked me. So we all went in and, and I didn't talk about the Bible. I just said to one, to the task force that they needed to have a conversation about hermeneutics, which is how we read and understand, right? That what we had not done, Lutherans have a really, I, you know, I'm, I'm Lutheran. I like Luther and I like the Lutheran stuff. But uh, Luther talked about scripture as the manger that held the infant Christ and said that the Bible is, the Bible swaddles Christ, but that Christ, the Christ event is the most important. And we always read scripture through the lens of Jesus and the gospel. So, but hermeneutically, we've not necessarily taught the people in our congregations to read that way. So we were getting up at synod assemblies and churchwide assemblies and flinging scripture at each other, which is so not Lutheran. You know, we just don't do that. That's not the way that we, that we experience scripture. We experience scripture by first understanding Christ and the Christ event and uh, the cross, and then by using that as the lens through which we read scripture. So individual verses with uh, divorced from Jesus it, Luther even said, if you quote, quote the Bible against Christ, I will quote Christ against the Bible. So, you know, we're, we're fond of the Bible. And we're really, people tell me I'm a really biblical preacher, which I, is a strange distinction to me too, because I can't figure out what the other kind of preacher is. <laughs> but I, I guess there's another category. Have you? <laughs> I like, I think that's super fun. Well, I was an English major, so, you know, delving into a text every week is boffo. I recently got to go to a seminar that another Presbyterian church put on mm -hmm. where LGBT persons were telling their stories. So that was really enlightening uh, to me. And honestly, I have to say I was embarrassed afterwards to realize how ignorant and naive I am because I did not think I was. But what was a real challenge to me, and I'm leaving up the question here, as a healthcare chaplain, mm. was the stories, the horrible stories that transgendered persons shared about how unsafe it is for them to go into healthcare environments, especially in an emergency situation. So my question is, um, as a church that advocates strongly for that community, do you keep maybe like even a safe list of places or doctors, physicians, hospitals who... I don't, but that's a great idea. Yeah, you know what that means. You know, yeah. We, like you said, it's one thing to put a banner out that says you're welcoming. Right. And honestly, I can speak from experience to say it's another one to know what the heck you're talking about yeah. when you say that. You know? yeah. If it's not your experience, you're going to have to really sit at the feet more than one person to listen to their story and get a sense of what it's like to be in that position. Yep. Um, so anyway, that was my question. Or maybe is there a place uh, here in this city, maybe an agency or other church? Probably the Kansas City Anti-Violence Project would be the, they, they would be the most likely to have a resource like that. Um, yeah, the Coalition for Welcoming Ministries works with churches but the Kansas City Anti-Violence Pro Project is a great organization and works mainly with uh, violence against transgender people, which you know is, uh, 
I wish I had the statistics more more readily, but I, I believe you're seven times more likely to be attacked as a transgender person. Uh, transgender people are, are murdered at a ridiculous rate, especially transgender people of color. Um, you, yes, healthcare can be, because as soon as you, you enter into any kind of situation where all of a sudden your body is in somebody else's hands, so law enforcement, the hospital, any kind of situation like that, if, if you're arrested and you're a transgender person and your license says that you're male and you identify and present as female, they will throw you in a cell with a bunch of, of men and you're, the, you're there wearing a dress. Well, how safe are you? Um, so we've got a lot of work to do in the community and advocating for transgender people is, is something that should be on all of our hearts. You know, if, we, if we're joining Jesus at the margins, that's who we're meeting there right now, is people who are being attacked just for, for their gender identity. Lady in the back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I work for a nonprofit, and uh, we serve people that are formerly incarcerated. And so uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we have emergency assistance days where anyone can walk in and we begin the process of getting, building relationship and finding out, you know, if housing is one of their needs, but we also have clothing and housewares and, and such. So um, the forms, uh, government forms mm. in particular, are lousy. It's male mm. or female, and, you know, it, it, you have to put something down for the most part because you want service. But in, there was a, a person that walked in and I could tell that this person wasn't readily in, in a camp that was going to answer one of those two questions. And I was trying to figure out a way to tell them that they were safe with us. And so I just want to share with you the way that I began that conversation with was, how would you like to be addressed? And at first I got this look, what do you mean? I said, well, do you have pronouns that you, that you favor, we would like to, you know, be very welcoming here. And uh, they said, Liz, I would like to be called Liz. And I said, Liz, what the last name was, I said, it's so lovely to have you here. And they said, thank you. Nobody's ever said that to me. So it's to be loved for who you are and who God made you and not to be greedy with judgment. It's the same thing that each of us wants. Mm. To be seen as who we are, yeah. Uh, that which uh, kind of a corollary point. When you're not sure about the the pronouns and and how people want to be addressed, ask them. Yeah, ninety eight percent of the time, the person will be thrilled that you asked. You know, and and two percent of people are going to give you a weird answer to anything you ask them. So, but but people, I mean, just just ask. Yeah, but thank you, sweet. Last question, who wants it? Yes. Okay, our church has recently gone from having an open and welcoming statement at the beginning mm -hmm. of the bulletin, which um, includes all kinds of divisions and for which visitors sometimes tell us we're going to hell, uh, which is always fun. Yay! Uh, but we've decided we want to be more intentional about welcoming, being welcoming to our sisters and brothers in the neighborhood. 
Mm-hmm. And so we are beginning to officially reach out and talk to people. Um, it's what got me off my butt and down here tonight to hear you. And as we are beginning to explore this, we know that we're a diverse congregation. Mm. So we absolutely have some conservative, pro-discrimination folks among us. Mm-hmm. And in previous churches, one of the most effective things I've seen to communicate congregations is the panels, like what she was talking about. Mm-hmm. People come in, tell their story, and everybody can ask mm-hmm. questions. But I've always seen those as being held um, after hours, during the week, totally voluntary. They include the members of the congregation that are interested in learning more. They do not include the people who are going, la, 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 la. So, my question, I guess, is twofold. First of all, how important is it that the conversation involves people who don't want to discuss it? And two, what other things do you know of that can be most effective in helping a church put their faith into action? It's essential that everyone is invited and encouraged to be part of the conversation. You can't always make them drink, <laughs> as the saying goes. Um, and, you know, uh, what happened to us as a synod and as a denomination after the whole sexuality task force statement policy change was that people said, this was crammed down our throats. We didn't know anything about it. Eight-year process. It was an eight-year process. They sent the statement out to every congregation and encouraged in the most vociferous way that we all take up the statement and study it in our congregations, and yet all the congregations who left, I will, I will guarantee you that to a one, no pastor brought that statement before the congregation. That congregation never had a chance to see it, and it came out of nowhere for them. It, just as, and, and I'm going to come back to your question, but this is kind of a good story. Uh, originally, uh, our, our first sexuality statement came out in, I believe, 93 and it was leaked to the press. And the, the headline ran in the New York Times, Lutherans affirm masturbation and homosexuality. And that was the end of the first sexuality statement, and it was 2009 before we got another one. So how it's done is really important. That was, you know, I, I guess smart. That was no doubt someone who wanted that conversation to go away. And you're going to get people... You know, and, and sometimes a, a congregation, a denomination, a synod moves on without people. You know, I, I, and I don't want to pick on the Southern Baptist Church, but the Southern Baptist Church moved and left people like one of our former presidents behind. Be- <laughs> Terrible child, good Lord. <laughs> He's upset about Jimmy Carter having to leave the Southern Baptist Conference. (laughs) So, you know, you do everything you can to bring people into the conversation. Make it really safe. Sometimes these conversations are not very safe. In my seminary in Berkeley, we decided to start a sexuality caucus. And all everybody wanted to talk about was how we could advocate for Craig and Donna and make sure that they get ordained. And how should we change the policy? And we wanted to talk about human sexuality. 
So it wasn't a safe place for students who, even in Berkeley, we had students who were like, I don't know about changing the policy and I don't know about gay and lesbian relationships. And we didn't carve out a space for them to come and feel safe and talk. So people can't feel like the deck is stacked and that the, the outcome is predetermined. And I think that was part of what happened with the, with the sexuality study was that people didn't know all of the pain and the long conversation and the difficult process that happened just to get to 2001 to establish the task force, but then to do the eight years of study. And they felt like it was a preordained outcome and, and they had been duped. So it has to be safe. Do everything you can to create a safe space for people. If you can even create a space where they can go and talk. Yeah. And then the other, the other thing that, that is almost never done very well is the point counterpoint thing you know it, we decided a while back that we had to have one voice here and and one pro and one anti or one this and one that and it just you know i samantha b and the, and uh john oliver and those folks have a, have a great time showing the people uh, talking heads yelling at each other on on, on network yeah. news and cnn and but you know safe space Stories are better than anything. Listening to people's stories. You know, people are willing to listen to me because I'm telling them about my life and not somebody else's life, except that I've told you about Ruth Ellen and Joni. But um, that was the other thing I wanted to, to and I, that, I forget why this came up. I know we probably, do we need to stop? Okay. Um, so we discovered in our denomination, uh, when, when it was formed in 1988, we, we set out what can only be called quotas. We were going to be 10% people of color by in the next 10 years. We were going to make sure that we had more lay people than ordained people at all of our meetings. And we were going to make sure that we had good gender balance. So we wanted a certain number of women and a certain number of men in every role, la-di-da-di-da, all the way down to this, the synodical level and who goes to the Senate Assembly. So we had Senate Assembly coming up. And when we went to elect our, our voting members to go to the Senate Assembly, we realized that we had two members of our congregation who didn't fit in the categories because we had to sign them up as male or female. And we realized that we are going to have to now, how this hasn't happened yet, I don't know, but, but now we will start the process of memorializing the, the larger church to change those categories because we wound up sending one of them as a young adult <laughs> because, because young adult didn't specify whether you were male or female and she's 25, which in the church is a young adult. Um, but, you know, the, thank you, Z. See, process. So yeah, so Z went to the Synod Assembly as a young adult, but uh, our other non-binary person couldn't have gone because Z is a non-binary person who is not a young adult because she's 30. Okay, I'll stop talking now. Thank you so much.